Welcome to the Gifted Life Podcast, where we have conversations about organ, tissue, and eye donation. You can always find us at thegiftedlife.org. I'm Lori Steele. I'm Joey Boudreau. And I'm Sarah Blakemore. Coming up on today's podcast, we'll be talking to someone who's been truly cured of diabetes. And we're going to be talking about panic attacks and what you need to know about them. All that and more on this episode of The Gifted Life. You guys ready? Yep. Mm -hmm. Let's do it. Here on The Gifted Life, you know we love our partners, and today we have some amazing folks, um, Christine and Kim, who are joining us from We Are Sharing Hope, South Carolina. So, Christine Neal, I'm going to say hi to you first. You're the Director of Communications. How are you? Hi, thank you so much for having us. Absolutely. Um, I am doing well, doing well. <laughs> and then your counterpart, Miss Kim Perkins. How are you, ma'am? I'm great. How are you guys? Thanks for having me. We are so uh, excited to talk to you guys. Uh, Ms. Kim is a recipient. Um, she's on the board of directors for South Carolina, and she's an amazing volunteer. So we're going to uh, talk about how uh, these two ladies come together to help us, you, all of us, make life happen. Um, so, Christine, let's start with you. Let's talk about We Are Sharing Hope South Carolina. What's the mission? What are you guys doing? So we are South Carolina's only OPO, Organ Procurement Organization. So we cover the entire state um, here in South Carolina, responsible for educating um, and serving more than 5 million people. Um, we have three offices. So we have an office in the upstate, uh, the Greenville area, as well as Columbia, the capital. Um, but then our headquarters is here in Charleston, where we have a majority of our staff um, out of, but our um, hope is to continue to serve the entire state of South Carolina, um, facilitate the gift of donation, organ, eye, and tissue donation. We have one transplant center partner here um, with MUSC, um, who is also in the Charleston area, and we partner with more than 80 donor hospitals throughout the state. Um, to facilitate the gift of life. And so as an organization, we have um, about 105 employees um, that are mission-focused and um, humbled to serve our donor families and to continue the legacies of our heroes, as well as celebrate the second chances that our recipients here receive, um, very much so like Kim. And um, we have a volunteer program. We are in the high schools. Um, we want to educate. We work very closely with Donate Life South Carolina, who manages the registry here in South Carolina. Um, so we work in partnership with them to educate people through the DMV offices as well. As we all know, you can register your wishes um, to become an organ, eye, and tissue donor whenever you're in the DMV offices. So um, making sure that people have the information there to to designate their decision as well as yeah. health fairs and all kinds of community events here. <laughs> I love it. I love to hear the, the similarities too. Christine, you know, of course, you guys have so much going on and uh, and it's, it's, it's a lot of the same things that what we've got here in Louisiana and of course all, all nationwide and, and actually globally, we've kind of been flipped upside down on our mission over the past <laughs> few months with uh, with the COVID-19 
I was wondering what kind of things that you guys had to do to implement and adapt to all the changes that were thrown our way. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that is a um, <laughs> clear definition of what has happened. We have definitely been flipped upside down. And um, right now, you know, we're in the midst of it a little bit. And we're hoping to sort of see um, ourselves over the curve. Um, I think we as a state and as a nation are um, looking forward to being able to um you know, sort of begin the new normal, I guess we can all say, um, on what that looks like. And um, from a donation standpoint, I think um, we were in line with our colleagues all over the country and adapting as this sort of um, became a reality for us and working in um, conjunction with our hospital partners as they were also navigating um, the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, on the front lines, we have so much admiration for our hospital partners and, um, you know, our teams, our clinical teams working side by side with them, our family support counselors. So we really had to learn to adapt what that looks like. Um, we always want to support our families and be there and, and provide comfort and hugs. And obviously, as we learned that this um, was so easily transferable, we had to limit our um presence um, in the hospitals. And so we began to comfort and support our families through phone and Zoom um, chats and our clinical coordinators, making sure that our staff was safe was always the top priority. Um, but we did, we had staff in the front lines. Um, we still do. And managing sort of that navigation with hospitals as they were also um, realizing the impact of COVID-19 with their patients and, um, and everything. So we were in very close communication with our hospital partners, with our transplant centers here in the region, just to make sure that we were um, protecting patient safety, that we were communicating a full clinical picture for our donors to be able um, to give that gift of life so that transplant centers um, had that level of comfortability with um, the unknown of COVID-19. So we were managing getting testing, um, ensuring that, that, that our staff had PPE, um, that we had all of the resources that we needed to be able to do to continue the gift of life. And we've been um, humbled to be able to continue supporting our families. We had um, 18 organ donor heroes in the month of April um, that said yes to the gift of life, saving more than 50 people. And so we think that that's an amazing testament to the gift of organ eye and tissue donation, especially through something like this. Um, and we know our colleagues all over the country have been remaining mission focused as well. And um, our teams and our OPO staff, I think, um, have done an amazing job just of staying true to the mission and, and being able to offer that for both our families and those who are waiting. Um, we know that they can't really wait that long and, um, and it's an essential surgery. So we've been proud of the work that's been going on here in South Carolina and across the country through COVID-19. It's funny, you know, we've, we've heard, and I'm sure you've heard it at meetings and, and conferences, you know, you, you see one OPO, you see one OPO, you know, because of our, our uniqueness and the way we uh, go about our business. But in this, you know, pandemic, when, when a crisis hits 
it's funny how we all are so drawn to the mission. The mission becomes everything. And mm-hmm. to main, maintain that the, the life-saving facilitation of organ donation that we have and that you guys have, we had very similar numbers. And of course, uh, you know, in, in April, we, you know, actually in March and April, we had been considered one of the hotspots and, and there was a whole lot of different things that we had to do from a, a family support standpoint and a, a clinical standpoint to, to continue to save lives. And, and, but it's so much, so very similar to a lot of the things that you did. And it's so funny when I hear, you know, our, our colleagues, how many different things that were done, but, but they were all still on the same page and very similarly done. Yeah, and I think that that's a testament to our community and to the staff, the OPO staff across the country. I've never um, been in a, um, you know, I've been doing, working in OPOs for 10 years. And one of the things that inspired me on day one was the commitment from the teams and the staff on um, the ability to save lives and honor legacies. And it's something that in tough times like this, we are all able to pull together and find unique ways. It may not look the same. It may not feel the same. Um, but the, the end result is the same in, in saving lives and being able to support our families. And um, so many times in the last um, you know few weeks and months, through COVID-19, many of our families have been so grateful for the opportunity for organ donation to sort of be that glimmer of hope for them and to give them something to hold on to so that the last memory wasn't of um, sort of these unique circumstances in the hospital and knowing that there was something bigger than, um, than what we were all experiencing in the time and that they have this gift of donation to really see them through and to give them comfort in their healing journey. So um, it was definitely a reminder um, of so many levels in terms of the impact of organ donation on our donor families and those who are waiting and um, our partners and our transplant center partners and our donor hospitals who all were navigating something new, um, but still remain so mission focused. And I'm in awe of all healthcare heroes from uh, my perspective, a lot of my friends' perspective. Um, There was so much thrown at everyone and it just seemed so flawless because the mission, we want to save lives at the OPOs, the organ procurement organizations. Uh, It's just amazing to watch. Uh, Kim, I want to bring you in um, to the conversation. I know you're a a recipient. Um, I deal with Mm -hmm. volunteers here in Louisiana. So uh, talk to us about um, having a transplant, being immunocompromised during a pandemic, and then still working to make life happen, to get the word out. What does that look like from where you sit? Um, it, it is no coincidence. I, um, I don't believe that this happened during um, February, March, and moving into April um, with the um, National Donate Life Month. Um, it's just given us an opportunity to um, stand stronger uh, you know, being a recipient and a business owner, a small business owner and a mom with a kid out of school um, and a husband that's um, essential worker, um, it's kind of come forward on all fronts and we've just had to find new ways to uh, uh, protect ourselves and still um, get those life-saving messages out there to the families of donors and the recipients that needed to get out there. Um, 
I went to my last social gathering on March 7th. Um, we've been in the house since then as a family. Mm-hmm. Um, and we went a little strict uh, with, you know, no outside food um, and no outside visitors inside the house and have been here at home since. Um, the school systems have been a blessing. Um, they made that call early on here in our state. And, you know, I, I'm so very thankful for that as a recipient. Um, even though as a mom and a worker, uh, we've struggled a bit to keep, you know, schoolwork going. But the transplant side is um, just been an opportunity to share with others what we do um, year round, um, a little bit more strategically during cold and flu season. But um, this by no means is the flu um, for us, but it has given us an opportunity to kind of reevaluate how we tackle being immunocompromised and being a diabetic, um, a former diabetic at that. And um, as most diabetics, we have high blood pressure. So being a a vulnerable individual in a pandemic has been quite interesting. Um, But it's given us an opportunity to do what we always do in the transplant community. And that's um, just kind of pull up our bootstraps and figure out a new strategy and, um, you know, be strong and be a survivor and, uh, you know, just kind of roll with the punches at the same time. we are yes. regimented, but we're also very flexible, um, and you have to be. And so that's just kind of given us just another opportunity to shine as a community. Well, Kim, you you sound like uh, you've got a lot of, of vigor, and and you certainly uh, live the mission. I was wondering, since I don't get to hear you speak, uh, you know, when you volunteer, I'd like to know a little bit more about the the the, the uh, your diabetes, and if you can, just for a moment. You know, I'm the chief clinical officer here at Lopen, and, and of course, I work with allocation quite a bit. And I feel so sorry for the, the for the diabetic patients that only need a pancreas because oftentimes, uh, what what we think uh, early on when we're doing the diagnostics from the, the pancreas side is not often what we see when we uh, get into recover. Oftentimes, it's you know what you see is what you get with the liver and with the heart and with the kidneys. But the pancreas is a little different. So have you had, when, when you were put on the waiting list, did you have any challenges or, or any dry runs that, uh, that you had to take or anything like that? Yeah, so the pancreas is a very angry organ. Um, it, it gets sick very easy, easily. It gets damaged very easily. Um, and it loves to clot off very fast. Um, doesn't like to be messed with. Um, and it, sometimes it's not happy in our own body. Um, hence um, diabetes and inflammation and pancreatitis. Um, so for a diabetic that is not in kidney failure with their native kidney, the pancreas only transplant um, is an option that nephrologists usually kind of tread lightly with. Um, in my situation, I had a transplant surgeon that was very, very um, hesitant to do a pancreas only transplant surgery on a nephrologist that really was excited to do it because I had healthy native kidneys. Um, My first complication from diabetes was gastroparesis. So my insulin delivery was not timing out with when my food emptied out of my stomach, which was sometimes hours or days later. Um, So that's what qualified me for transplant um, seven years ago. Um, I was listed and um, told to take a quick vacation. Um, During that vacation, about 10 days after listing, um, I received my first phone call, and it was decided that it was a it was a great opportunity 
um, to fly home from vacation and, and go for that situation um, of transplantation. Once I was admitted into the hospital, uh, about 24 hours passed and it, it, it was then, um, the pancreas is one of the last organs to be procured because um, the vascular system, of course, is safe for the vital organs of heart, liver, kidney. Um, and so the pancreas was one of the last ones. It was kind of found um, that the pancreas in that particular donor uh, was not viable due to chest compressions or damage during an accident or, um, you know, any, any forces of nature that happens during that uh, situation. So um, I went home um, and uh, went home still as a type one diabetic. Um, quite depressed, um, but understanding that it was good practice and um, still in um, thought and prayers for the family that did lose their loved one and made the decision to donate. Um, and uh, joyful at the fact that lots of those other organs were probably transplanted. Um, about 30, 30 to 35 days later, I received a call in the middle of the night, um, went back to the hospital fully expecting maybe another dry run because there is two or three that usually come with um, transplant, um, got there and, um, there never was a mention of, you know, there not being a surgery, even though in the back of my mind, um, I had decided that that could be a possibility. Um, and it, it was a go from the beginning. Um, at that point I received the pancreas, um, and was discharged five days later, um, to the, uh, transplant house in, um, Atlanta right on the outskirts of Emory Hospital where I received my transplant. Um, it, once I came home, I uh, took several months to recover um, and began writing my donor family. Um, several months later, almost a year later, I received a call from the chaplain that the letters had kind of gotten misplaced during a move um, and that that situation had been ironed out, but that the donor family had expressed um, a desire to release their information to the recipient families. Um, it was at that time that our letters were expedited and we were put in touch with each other. It was at that time that I learned that my donor was a 16-year-old um, um, out of the outskirts of Atlanta, Georgia, who had made the decision to be an organ donor when he went to get his license at the DMV. Um, he signed up. He was um, probably one of the only ones in his family that did so. Um, he went home and had a discussion with his mom and said, this is something that's very important to me. Um, and I want to do this. And this is what I did today. And I just wanted you to know. Um, so when he uh, was involved in a drowning accident in an above ground pool um, on the last day of school, he, uh, he was signed up to be an organ donor and his mother followed through with his wishes. Um, and she will state to this day that um, she did not understand the process and it was a hard process for her at the time. But when she received my letter, she realized that it was the opportunity for him to do something more with his life, almost as if he had prepared his whole entire life to, to be that mission itself. Um, and that that was part of his way of taking care of her even after he was gone to provide her with an outlet and friendships that um, would sustain her and understand um, that she had, had suffered tremendous loss in her life. And so um, every year on the anniversary of his passing, we do something quite adventurous um, because he was pretty adventurous. 
Um, and in the past, uh, we usually end up whitewater rafting or <laughs> something, something crazy that um, two moms probably shouldn't be doing, but we do it anyway. Um, and uh, we have a great time. <laughs> Wow, that's such an amazing story. And, you know, throughout this entire conversation, I keep hearing themes of resilience, both in the OPO world and with you as a recipient and even with your donor's mother, just you all are not just surviving, you're thriving. So can you give um, our listeners some tips on how to do just that, how to not just survive, but to thrive? Um, I think resilience and, and, and thriving um, come from a positive attitude. Um you know, there is so much negativity um, and you can only meet negativity successfully with with light and positivity and, um, you know, just the hope that um, something good will come of everything. Um, I, I remember a statistic was given to me by one of the transplant surgeons on how often a pancreas clots off um, after it's transplanted. And, you know, I only heard you know, the statistic was like 92%, um, you know, it doesn't, and 8%, it, it does. And I only heard the 92%. I mean, who wouldn't? Um, but apparently, some people only hear the 8%. <laughs> and that was what was shocking to me. It wasn't that they actually caught off. It was that some people only hear the 8% of the negative and not the 92% of the positive. So, um, you know, we get an opportunity in life to... Um, take the good from every situation, um, even if there's sadness and even if there's tragedy and, and, and meet it and, and share it with other people. Um, she lost her son. My, my donor's mother lost her son um, and, and, and she will never recover from that and he will never be forgotten. But the ability for she and I to celebrate how many opportunities he's given her since then to be a friend and be a hard worker and be a mother to her other children and remarry and just all the opportunity that she and I have had to develop a friendship that nobody else in this lifetime gets to do is a positive thing. I mean, how many people get to say, you know, my son saved her life and made her life better and she's gotten to see her son do things that she never thought she would be able to see. So, um, you know, that's a gift that most people don't get to celebrate together. So the resiliency of that, um, you, you, you got to share it. <laughs> you can't keep something like that to yourself. Okay, Kim, the next time we can go to the Transplant Games of America, I'm going to need a hug. Okay, if this COVID-19 <laughs> yeah, is I'm a, I'm, us. I'm a big hugger, so I'm a bit in a deficit <laughs> right now. So I'm just going to warn you. Um, <laughs> all of the other, all of my other transplant friends from the game, um, know me as a hugger so when we we actually land our feet in the convention center they kind of they kind of plan them because they know i'm coming in for a hug <laughs> so you'll have to do i love thing. to hear that kim and christine i do want to talk about the the transplant games normally uh we would all be gearing up to attend the transplant games an olympic style show uh, a way to promote uh, organ tissue eye donation and to honor um, heroes like like Johnny Kim. So, uh, Christine, let's talk about um, you guys participating in that. Um, we do have to put that off for at least another year uh, due to yeah. the coronavirus. Kim, I know you're sad about that as well. I'm sad too, y'all. Um, well. But it's just a great <laughs> program where everyone across the world can come together uh, to celebrate life, to honor heroes. Yeah. 
No, I am. I'm so sad. And um, I know that it was a very difficult decision for those who had to make that that call. And um, I do think it's the right one. But I think all of us are going to, like Kim said, you know, be hugging each other (laughs) a little extra tight next time we're all together. Because I think that the Transplant Games is just one of those events that symbolizes what organ eye and tissue donation means across the country and across the world. And Um, the ability for our recipients to be able to compete in um, these Olympic style games and, um, and even, you know, cards and uh, darts and, you know, fun things for across the spectrum is just a way to um, celebrate the second chance that they've been given. um, And that also honors their donor hero. Um, Not everybody has the opportunity to know their donor families and, I remember one of the very first transplant games I ever attended, I walked away thinking the community that exists at something like that is so awe-inspiring and something that touches people, I think, to the core. Um, You know, the ability to think you may not be my donor family, but you're a donor family. So you're my donor family. And same with the recipients. You may not be my recipient, but you're a recipient. So you're my recipient. Mm-hmm. And I think that that overarching message is something that we all strive to um, bring back to our homes, um, our home states and our home teams and um, just really sort of create that um, feeling in our volunteer programs and um, in our ambassadors because it's so strong and um, really speaks to the core of why we all do what we do here in the OPOs. Um, is to be able to present opportunities like that. So I know everybody is missing um, what the Transplant Games provides this year. Um, I think that we can continue to tell those stories and, um, you know, I and share pictures of um, medals that everybody has won and good times that have been had because we will have them again. I think Um, The key is to that is resiliency. We will be back um, and we will be stronger than ever. And when we are all together, I think we'll have a little bit extra to celebrate, um, you know, and, and to honor. So. Gotcha. Kim, tell me really quickly what you, what you compete in at the transplant games. So um, I went to Cleveland in 2016 and Salt Lake city in 2018. Um, Both times I competed in, um, the virtual triathlon, which is a combination of swimming, cycling, and running. Um, they combine your times and you medal in each individual competition and then also in the competition as a whole. Um, so we have a strong, close-knit group of athletes that do that particular comp- competition um, that stay in communication um, in the downtime of the two years. Um, and then also the competition of track and field. I, I try to compete in as much as I can on that track and field day. Um, so that's just my way of staying active. Um, I know that every two years I'm going to have the ability to travel and um, compete athletically in some stuff. And so that keeps me on my toes uh, physically and, uh, you know, keeps me with a goal in mind um, for my own personal health. But more so just um, right. just like Christine said, to go and, and sense that community, um, you will have yes. a donor mom putting a medal around your neck. It may not be your donor mm-hmm. mom, but um, her tears are falling 
right along with yours on that metal stand um, because it's an opportunity for for that mom to say to another mom, um, you know, this is me acknowledging that you are doing with my child's gift what what should be done, and that's living life. Um, and it also gives them an opportunity to meet people that are in the same medical situations as us um, and, and to meet families. You know, I, I met a couple one year at the transplant games um, during the donor remembrance ceremony, um, and they were standing in front of the poster with their son's picture on it. Um, and when I looked at the date of his donation, um, it was 20 years ago. Um, and I turned around and I said, thank you for your donation. And and she said, are you a recipient? And I said, yeah. And, you know, they had never met their son's recipients. And so it was an opportunity oh. for, for them to hear thank you from a recipient that they may have never heard in another situation. Um, and this yeah, family uses the Transplant Games as a, um, a reunion of sorts um, to mm-hmm. celebrate the life of their son. You had a... Um, a couple that was no longer married, but they, they shared love for a son that they lost and they come together, you know, once every two years and spend a week together of their vacation time, um, honoring their son. So there, it's just an opportunity for people to focus a week on, um, life's extraordinary gifts and, and our extraordinary talents as recipients to, um, do something with those gifts. I love it. It's definitely something to experience. If you haven't been, um, you can check out uh, transplantgamesofamerica.org. Uh, the new date for Transplant Games, July 16th through the 21st of 2021. So we hope to meet you guys there. You guys want more um, on South Carolina's program, Sharing Hope SC. Org. And I do want to leave everybody uh, with a quote from Miss Kim. Kim, I just love this when we were preparing for the interview. Donation doesn't just buy someone time. It gives you a lifetime, a family, friends, travel, relationships, and adventure. We enjoyed the visit, ladies. Thank, Thank you so much you. for having us. On the Gifted Life podcast, we take a moment for mental health. Yeah, today's topic is one that's very scary, and uh, actually many of my friends have had to deal with it. It's panic attacks. What do you have to say about panic attacks today, Sarah Blakemore? <laughs> uh, it, you know, it is a very scary topic, but I've had a couple friends and family members who during this pandemic have had pretty serious panic attacks. I kind of wanted to just give some information to everybody so that we can all understand, grow, learn, and maybe hopefully someone can go and get help if they need it. Um, Yeah. So what is a panic attack? You know, it's not just a rush of anxiety. A panic attack is sudden onset of extreme fear and anxiety that causes both a physical reaction and a psychological reaction. What's important to know is that the level of fear that you experience is unrealistic and it's out of proportion for what the circumstances of the trigger of that panic attack are. So what are some of those symptoms? If you talk to people who have panic attacks or who've ever had just one, um, a lot of times they say it feels like you're having a heart attack. So that's like those physiological symptoms is that shortness of breath, pain on your chest. It feels like a lot of times people say it feels like you've got a large rock on your chest. So it's constricting that respiratory drive. Some of those psychological symptoms is um, a lot of negative self-talk 
a lot of feelings of disconnection from oneself. So you can kind of feel kind of disconnected from your physical body and you feel like you're losing control. So it's pretty scary. Um, If you've ever had a panic attack, you can testify how frightening it is. And it can even last for some people for 20 minutes. So what causes panic attacks? Well, we're not really sure still. There are some theories out there about some chemical imbalances in your brain or some genetic dispositions. So that's another thing that can kind of bring some fear into this is that we're not totally positive what causes panic attacks still. Um, But what should you do if you have a panic attack or if you have several? You should immediately speak to your doctor, both mental health and medical doctor. What they'll likely say to you is that um, you can get on some medications, so some psychopharmacology treatment, um, and you can also do some therapies like cognitive behavioral therapy, which will help you cope with the symptoms of anxiety and fear. Oftentimes, I can tell you, you know, from personal experience, uh, back in my day in the ER, uh, we took care of quite a bit of, of patients who were suffering from a panic attack. And I can tell you, firsthand that we couldn't tell the difference you know Mm -hmm. it was that that extreme chest pain Mm -hmm. uh sharpness of breath Uh, they they were sweating profusely Mm -hmm. you know and 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 there again like you said there was no real trigger you know so so we treated them as heart attack patients until it was proven otherwise and and you know that back in the day of course you know this is I was in the ER quite some time back, but you know there was a little bit of a stigma, especially with guys having having panic attacks, and people would mm-hmm. think, "Oh man, I can't," you know, you know, they, they felt awkward. Even some of my friends relaying it, but it's a it's a real, you know, like you said, it's true physiological issues uh, along with the emotional and, and and other issues that come with it. That's it's as scary. And I, I said it from the top. It's as scary to watch. Mm-hmm. And and I can't imagine from, you know, internally how scary it must be when it's taking place. Right. A lot of people describe it as um, they feel like they're dying even. And right. it's, it's really scary. So um, if anything, you know, just some quick little coping, just know that you're going to be okay. You know, know that there are people who are surrounding you that love you and that want the best for you. And that this is something that you can cope with. You can reach out to the experts and reach out to those medical professionals and those mental health professionals. And it's something that just know that it will get better in time. If you seek out those medical professionals, those mental health professionals, it can get better. I like that. And your voice is soothing. Oh. <laughs> yes, I like it. Maybe you have a topic you want Sarah to cover here on the Gifted Life podcast. We'd love to hear from you. You can communicate with us through info at thegiftedlife.org. In every episode of The Gifted Life, we honor a hero. Today's hero is Keegan from South Carolina. 
and we learn about Keegan from his family. Keegan always wanted to leave a big legacy. If I had to describe him in three words, I would say he was energetic, loved, and had the most beautiful smile. He had so many gifts. Keegan never met a stranger. He was kind to everyone and never judgmental. An incredible big brother, loved his family, and was a huge Clemson fan. As his mom, I always knew Keegan would change the world, but now I want everyone to know how special he truly was. He loved being the center of attention and was a hero to so many. His honor walk was the most beautiful tribute to him with singing and cheering exactly as Keegan would have wanted it. He always wanted to be an organ donor. His funeral was his last celebration with 1,300 people. Keegan's legacy is his friends and the numerous people who received a second chance because of his gift. Not only do we honor his wishes to be a donor hero, but because of Keegan, our entire family registered as donors as well. It is a true honor and so special to me to live each day telling his story. We miss him and know our lives will never be the same, but we have such a good community and I am so thankful to be his mom. And now we pause and say thank you to Keegan for the gift of life. question and answer segment today. I used to live in South Carolina, but I've moved to another state. Do I need to register in the new state and cancel my registration in South Carolina? Sarah, you want to take this one? Sure. And that's a great question. And actually, a lot of people ask us that. So coming from a family advocate, I go on site and I gather initial information on all our potential donors. So I can tell you this. Do not cancel any registry if you wish to stay on the registry. You can register in your home state, anywhere you go. You can also register nationally at registerme.org. We will find your registry letter. We can call every OPO in this country and ask them to search for the registry, as well as they can call LOPA and ask for our registry status as well. Um, So just know that if you're registered, we will find it and we will know that and we will give that information to your family when it's appropriate. Oh, great question. And and if you guys out there have a question, we want to hear from you. Email your questions to info at thegiftedlife.org. You can also give us a call, 504-648-3477. We may even play your message on the podcast. And that'll do it for episode 138 of The Gifted Life. Yes, thanks to our friends in South Carolina. We are sharing hope, South Carolina. Christine Neal, the Director of Communications, and Kim Perkins for sharing their stories. And I've got one word to say about that, resiliency. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. I know. I love it. I could have listened to them all day, guys. Um, hopefully we inspired you. If you're not a registered organ tissue eye donor, uh, that maybe you want to take that step. You can do that right now. Uh, it takes less than a minute. Registerme.org. And to listen to more of our podcasts, you can visit us at our website, thegiftedlife.org. You can listen there or anywhere you listen to your podcasts, whether it's Apple, Google, Spotify, or iHeartRadio. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, go ahead and leave us a five-star rating and subscribe so that others can find us. And if you're on social media, go ahead and like our Facebook page, The Gifted Life Podcast, and follow us on both Twitter and Instagram. 
at Gifted Life Pod. And thank you, 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 all of you for listening and tuning in to the Gifted Life Podcast. We certainly appreciate it. We hope that you share this information. Our goal is to make life happen. We have one more ask. Uh, When you go out, we hope that you do something you wouldn't normally do to help us make life happen. Have a great day. This is a production of LOPA, or the Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency. The Gifted Life is hosted by Lori Steele, Joey Boudreaux, and Sarah Blakemore. Our executive producer is Kirsten Hines. Producer is Shalon Carraway. Intern is Rebecca Ranham. And we are recorded, engineered, and mixed in our Covington, Louisiana studio by Troy Perez.